go to junior church. So let's see, kids age four to grade three are going to room upsta- uh, room one upstairs and grades four to six to room two. And now, for everyone else, if you'd like to stand and greet one another, say hello. All right, I invite you to find your seats. And to take your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, you can find one in one of the seats in front of you. And open up to Luke chapter 6. 
We're looking at Luke chapter 6, verses 46 to 49 this morning. And if you're using the Bible from the seat in front of you, you'll probably find that on page 730 or thereabouts. Luke chapter 6, 46 to 49. We live in a world uh, of appearances and imitations where not everything that we see is the genuine article. So, for example, there's faux leather and uh, faux brick and uh, faux hair and faux pop stars. But do you know that there are even faux Christians? So how do you spot the faux version of Christianity and tell it apart from the genuine article? Well, in today's passage, Jesus tells us how. He teaches us how to tell the faux Christian sitting in church from the real one. Because faux Christians do go to church regularly. They volunteer for ministries. They may actually be ministry leaders. They uh, believe that Jesus is their Lord and Savior. They read their Bibles and even memorize scripture. They may take notes on sermons and speak appreciatively of them. In fact, they may even give them. They study their Bible diligently. They lead clean, upstanding lives. And and so you can see it's not easy to tell a faux Christian from the genuine article. But it's important to tell the difference. And so Jesus teaches us how. But here's the thing. Jesus doesn't teach us how to tell the difference so that we can go around and judge others. Or so that we can go on a witch hunt to root out all the faux Christians. No, the reason that Jesus teaches us to discern the difference is so that we can judge ourselves to see if we are a real Christian or if we are a faux one. So this passage isn't for the guy next to you or the gal next to you. This scripture is for you and for me. In this passage, Jesus compares the living of our Christian life to the building of a house. And he points out that a Christian life is based on Christ's word, any Christian life. To be a Christian means that as you go through your life, you are regularly coming to Jesus to hear and to listen to his words. And as we hear Jesus' words and as we live our lives, Jesus compares this to building our house. In Jesus' parable here, we learn that it's hard to tell a faux Christian from a real Christian because both kinds of Christians build similar houses based on Jesus' words. As I said, both read their Bible, both listen to sermons, both study the Gospels. So on the surface, the life of a real Christian and of a faux Christian may look virtually identical. Because according to Jesus, the difference is found where you can't readily see it. The difference is found in the foundation, or lack thereof. The foundation is underneath. It isn't readily visible, but the foundation is critical, right? A foundation isn't much to look at, but it's super important. The whole integrity and survival of the house depends on the foundation. To illustrate how important foundations are, Jesus points out what happens to houses with and without foundations. When a huge storm comes, a a big storm and a flood come along and they hit a house with no foundation. And what happens if the storm is big enough, if the flood is fierce enough, the house comes crashing down. 
It's ruined. It's destroyed. That, Jesus says, is the life of a faux Christian. It it looks good on the surface, but underneath it has no foundation. And so eventually it comes crashing down. But a real Christian life, Jesus says, is like a house with a good, solid foundation dug deep down and planted on bedrock. A life like this, Jesus says, will stand against the fiercest storms. A Christian life like this is the real deal. It's firm, it's dependable, it's steadfast, it's enduring. So how do you tell the difference between a real Christian and a faux Christian? How do you tell if your life is a real Christian life or a faux one? Well, you could wait until the huge storm comes and then see what happens. But obviously, waiting for the storm to come is a bad idea for a couple reasons. First of all, because once the storm comes, it's too late, right? I mean, if you were buying a house, you wouldn't ignore the foundation and say, well, I'm not worried about having that inspected because someday there'll be a big storm and we'll know if the foundation's good or not. No, of of course not, because it's too late then. You want to make sure that the house that you're investing your life savings in, that you're going to put your family in, has a good solid foundation before the storm comes. Second of all, it's a bad idea to wait for the storm to come to test the foundations of your life, because in the analogy Jesus gives here, he doesn't say what the storm represents. Does the storm represent the hardships and troubles of life? Does it represent the ultimate storm, which is death itself, when we face eternity? Or does the storm represent God's judgment, which Jesus says we face after we die, when our life is tested and our eternal destiny is at stake? Or does it represent all the above? Jesus doesn't tell us. He doesn't explain exactly what the storm is, which will test the foundations of our life and determine whether we end in destruction or not. And so we better not wait until the storm comes. We need a different way. We need a better way to tell us now if our Christian life has a good foundation. To tell us if we're a real Christian whose life will endure or a faux Christian whose life will end in catastrophic destruction. And Jesus gives us a better way, doesn't he? He gives us a way to tell because Jesus says that when the, or he tells us rather what the foundation of a Christian life is. He says it is putting his words into practice. That's the foundation. Do you want to know if you're a faux Christian or a real one? Then ask yourself this question. Do I just come to Jesus and listen to his words? Or do I actually put those words into practice? According to Jesus, that's the foundation for a real Christian life, putting Jesus' words into practice. The faux Christian reads their Bible, they listen to sermons, they do Bible studies, they may know and understand a great deal of God's word, but when it comes down to it, they don't put those words into practice. Which means they have no foundation. And when the storms come, their life is going to come crashing down, says Jesus. So it's not about hearing Jesus' words, is it? It's about, or it's not about, it's not about studying them. It's not about memorizing them. Rather, it's about doing all of that and then going ahead and putting Jesus' words into practice. 
Well, this raises a further question. Which words of Jesus does the real Christian put into practice? I mean, Jesus said a lot of things. And we've got four Gospels worth, not to mention the rest of the Bible, which if Jesus is God, then those in a sense are his words too. But which words are we to put into practice? Well, the safe answer, of course, is all of Jesus' words, right? That would be a sure bet. But especially, let's notice that our passage where Jesus gives us this warning is the conclusion of a sermon that Jesus has just preached in Luke 6. And so our passage today certainly refers to everything Jesus says, but it especially refers to the teaching that Jesus just gave us in Luke 6. Jesus is warning us in particular that these words, which Jesus has just spoken, starting in verse 20 of Luke 6, which we've been looking at over the last few weeks, these words we must not only hear, but we must also put into practice. To ignore Jesus' teaching in Luke 6, to hear it but to not live it out, is to be a faux Christian. It's to be living a life without a foundation and to be planning for disaster on the day when the storms and floods come. Now, let me be honest. I don't think we believe this. Because think about Luke 6 and what Jesus says there. I don't think we believe, verses 20 to 26, that the poor and hungry are blessed. I don't think we believe it is blessed to be one who weeps, blessed to be hated and excluded and rejected on account of Jesus. I'm not sure we believe that we are in grave danger if we are rich and well-fed and well-liked and accepted, like Jesus says in his words here. And yet Jesus says, in our passage that we're looking at this morning, that if we are not living in light of this new upside-down reality of Jesus' kingdom, then we are courting disaster. We are living without a foundation. That we are faux Christians, not real ones. Jesus says to us, verse 27, if you are a real Christian, then you are loving your enemies. You are doing good to those who hate you. You're blessing those who curse you and praying for those who mistreat you. Verse 29, when someone insults you and slaps you on the cheek, then you're turning the other also. When someone takes something that you depend on, like your coat, you're freely letting them have your shirt as well. If we are real Christians with a real foundation under us, Jesus says, verse 30, we are giving to everyone who asks us. And when someone takes our stuff or borrows from us, we are not demanding it back. If we're real Christians, we're doing to others what we'd have them do to us, verse 31. And when we're taken advantage of, we, we just look forward to our great reward that God will give us. And, and we know that we're children who represent our God in heaven because God is also kind to the ungrateful and to the wicked, verses 33 to 36. According to Jesus, that is real Christianity. That is a life with a true foundation. A life which doesn't just hear these words and discuss them in a small group or a Bible study, but which actually puts them into practice. A real Christian life, verses 37 to 38, is a life which does not judge, does not condemn, does not hold on to bitterness, but forgives. A life which gives freely and generously. 
because we know that the measure by which we treat others is the measure that God will use to judge us. A life lived this way has a good foundation, Jesus says. Verses 34 to 35, such a life is like a good tree which produces good fruit. It springs from a good heart in which are stored up good things and from the overflow of this heart flow good works and good words, good deeds. If this describes you, then you are probably a real Christian. You're building your house on a solid foundation. But if you hear Jesus' words here and you think, well, these are pretty radical. These are too hard. I'm going to skip past them and see if Jesus says something better in the next chapter. Then Jesus says, watch out. You are building your house without a foundation. Why, Jesus, of all of your teaching, Jesus, did you have to give us this warning after this teaching in this chapter? Why couldn't you put it after something easier? Like maybe I am the good shepherd or uh, um, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Or uh, if you believe in me, you will have eternal life. Those we could happily put into practice. But blessed are the poor, woe to the rich, and love your enemies and let them take your stuff. Jesus, how can living that way be a solid foundation? Is anyone else with me here? (laughs) Wouldn't you think it would be just the opposite? Doesn't it seem like the best foundation for life is actually a big savings account and a lot of equity in your home and some good insurance policies and some carefully placed investments and maybe some freeze-dried food in the basement and some gold and silver just in case? Doesn't it seem like the best foundation for life is a good education and a, or a good business plan or a loving and faithful marriage? Also, the the common sense wisdom to know how to or who to avoid and and how to not get cheated, to not get taken advantage of. So you don't lose all that you've worked so hard to gain. And yet Jesus comes along and says almost exactly the opposite. Jesus says that those who can't afford all of this are the blessed ones. And that we should be good to those who oppose us. And should not resist them when they take advantage of us. How could living that way be a solid foundation? Which will see us through the storms. I mean, living that way could get you crucified, Jesus. And Jesus says, welcome to Christianity. If you would like to join, then take up your cross and follow me. I am bringing a new kingdom, and in this kingdom, everything is turned upside down. Actually, it's turned right side up. And in my kingdom, following my upside down example is the only sure foundation. And then Jesus is so audacious as to say, and if you don't want to live this way, then don't call me your Lord. Verse 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say. It's fine to call me the Lord Jesus and to go to church and to wear a cross around your neck, to pray your prayers and to read your Bible. But if you really consider me your Lord, then you'll do what I say, right? 
And if you don't plan to do what I say, then, then call me an advisor, call me a confidant, call me an inspiration, but don't call me your Lord and King. And don't expect that I will recognize you as a true citizen of the kingdom I've come to establish. Sure, there are plenty of faux Christians who, who come to me and, and listen to my words, but don't put them into practice. They're building houses without foundations. And their lives won't stand up to the storm and flood when they come. If you want a real Christian life, Jesus says, then put my words into practice. And that's how I'll know that I'm really your Lord. That's what Jesus is saying in this passage. Isn't that fair to say? It's like Jesus knows that we're tempted to pass quickly over Luke 6 and forget it. But this is exactly what Jesus will not let us do. And so at the end of Luke 6, he says, wait, wait, not so fast. Before you turn the page to Luke 7. I know you found my teaching here baffling and hard to believe. But go back and read it again. And then do it. Put it into practice. And Jesus warns us in the strongest possible terms that to fail to put these teachings into practice will have disastrous consequences and will lead to a life of destruction. Now, you may be wondering, where is the grace in that? Isn't Jesus all about salvation by grace? Where is the free salvation without having to earn it? Well, here's what I think Jesus would say. And that is, yes, it's all about grace. All these words here are words of grace to you. I care about you enough to, to point you on the right path, even if you can't understand yet how it is the right path. I care enough to warn you not to be a religious phony who talks the talk but doesn't walk the walk. I care about you enough to remind you that you can't make me into the savior you wish I was because the savior you wish I was can't save you. Only the real savior can save you. I am the real savior who's teaching you now in Luke 6. The one who demands little of you is only a figment of your imagination and that savior can't save you because that savior doesn't exist. These are my words. I said them. I mean them. I expect you to do them. I'm not changing my mind. My words, my expectations are not going away. Trust me. If you can't trust my teaching on these things, how do you know you can trust me at all? The same Savior who, who tells you your sins are forgiven by grace tells you to love your enemies and, and to give to the one who asks. And if you can't trust me to teach you, then why do you think you can trust me to save you? Yes, I will save by grace everyone who puts their faith in me. Do you have faith in me? Do you? Then do what I say. And yes, it's all about grace. It's it's. It's about grace, and I'm only asking that you share with others the grace that you have received from me. 
You'll learn more about my grace from giving it away to others than you did by receiving it. Grace is meant to be shared. If you don't have any grace to share, then you don't have any grace. Of course, you can't earn my salvation by doing these things. You can't obey your way into my good graces. I welcome you by grace into a life of both receiving and giving grace. And if you don't want to give to others the grace you've received from me, then my salvation is not really what you're looking for. There are other kingdoms you can join. There are other religious figures you can follow. But I have told you what it means to live in my kingdom and to follow me as Lord. And I expect that you will live this way if I am your Lord. Okay, Jesus, I get it. You're serious. You don't want to, you won't let us off the hook. So here's what I'm going to do then. I'm going to put this stuff into practice. And if I fail, I'm going to confess that I'm wrong and ask your forgiveness. And then I'm also going to ask you to give me a new heart to make me a good man who will be, bring good out of the good that you store up in me. And then I'm going to get up and I'm going to try again, trusting that you're going to help me live this way. The comfort in this is that Jesus didn't say we had to get it all right the first time. He didn't say we had to get it perfectly. And we know that his first disciples who heard him speak this sermon for the first time messed up plenty of times, right? But they did try to live this stuff out. And with Jesus' help, eventually they came to succeed. Because they were real Christians. And I want to be a real Christian too. Let me close with a, a story about um, a prisoner that someone I know um, knows and visits in Los Angeles. This young man, we'll call him Jim, went to prison uh, barely into his 20s. Um, for hanging out with the wrong crowd and, and being along when a serious crime was committed. He was there in the car when it happened. And in the course of plea bargaining, um, he gave up the name of the main perpetrator of the crime, who we'll call Rusty, who then went to prison as well. And um, this was all 10 or more years ago. And recently, Jim um, has become a new, though somewhat shaky, Christian. And um, all this time, these last 10 years or so, Jim has lived in mortal fear, fear of Rusty. Uh, because he knows that if Rusty ever finds him, Rusty is going to kill him for ratting him out and sending him to prison. The prison system has a note in the file of these two men to never put them in the same prison for this exact reason. But of course, mistakes get made. And here's the way Jim tells the story in a letter. I'm still trying to get my mind wrapped around everything that has happened. The other night, I finished a letter up to you, and I walked it down to the box to drop it in, and then I continued out into the prison yard at night. As I talked with a guy from upstairs, a familiar face approached me. He asked my name, and I could only think that this was all a bad dream. It was rusty. The one person all of my fears have rested upon for the entire time I've been in prison. My heart was instantly in my mouth, and I thought for sure it was time to fight it out right there and hope he didn't have a knife. 
as it happened, he started off by talking. He told me that he had a lot of animosity for me for years, that he wanted to kill me, and how he had run into people in here who knew me, and that he had dragged my name through the mud. He continued that I took his life away, and I brought him here. But at a point in his life, he had almost died of cancer, and he had actually found Christ. It changed his life. He was born again, forsaking his gang and all the temptations of this place. It occurred to him then that he had taken my life from me by pulling that gun out and sending me to prison. He put me, uh, okay, this is uh, Rusty's continuing, that he had put me in a position where I didn't have much of a choice but to give up his name. And now he wanted to ask me for forgiveness. He said he was sorry and that he should have been a better man. This all blew me away. Here is a guy that I thought would come hunting me someday, and now he was giving me a hug and telling me how Jesus washed our past away and that what happened between us wasn't important anymore. I was at a loss for words. It all has impressed on me how God urges us to pray for our enemies and those who hate us. Here is someone who for nearly a decade I viewed as the most, my most bitter enemy, and then he shows up in the spirit of Christ and apologizes to me for screwing up my life and thanking me for giving up his name because prison literally saved his life. It still blows me away, but above it, I have to remember to live with the Holy Spirit inside my heart to foster love for God's creations, no matter how much they may seem opposed to me. Christ prayed on the cross for those who put him there, how much love and humility it must have taken. This should be my example. And it's kind of embarrassing that it took seeing Rusty face to face like this for me to really feel the message pressed upon me. Nonetheless, God is working in ways that I never imagined, and I have to settle myself into this current instead of trying to fight against it. That's what real Christianity looks like. That's what God's kingdom is when it's at work. It's what can happen when we not only listen to Jesus' words, but when we actually put them into practice. And I don't know about you, but with God's help, that's the kind of Christian I want to be.